But first, uh, it may be what uh, the most brazen shooting yet in Metro Vancouver's latest wave of gun violence. A 28-year-old man was shot dead near the international departure at terminal at YVR. The victim was known to police and the suspects fired at police as they escaped. This was the second fatal gang hit on the weekend and the seventh shooting in nine days in Metro Vancouver. Five of them, five, have been fatal. Let's take a listen uh, uh, to part of the press conference from last night. First, we'll hear from Frank Jan, the IHIT media spokesperson, and then Chief Superintendent Will Ng, Richmond from Richmond RCMP. There comes a time where you know, there's just no further words. You know, I think, you know, please do the right thing. Please don't kill one another. Stop the violence. Apparently, it's falling on deaf ears to some, and they continue to harm one another. They continue to shoot their guns, putting all of us in jeopardy. They will stop at nothing to target rivals, even if it's at an international airport in broad daylight on Mother's Day. So some really shocking, uh, you know, police uh, descriptions there that really are concerning. And this is not the first time we're, we're hearing from this. And we'll be hearing more this morning from the police about some other incidents over the last couple of weeks and the one in Burnaby on the weekend. And how concerned should the public be? You know, joining me now is Hillary Morden. And Hillary Morden is a PhD candidate at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at SFU. Uh, and she's joining me now to talk a bit about this gang violence. Hello, Hillary. Hi. So it doesn't get more brazen than this. A shooting, again, in such a public place with, uh, with, with one exit route, which we've heard is, you know, very strange. Does this give the appearance that many of these shootings are more, uh, more impulsive than potentially planned? They're just kind of random and they're just going, you know, a bit crazy here? Um, I wouldn't call them actually random because generally there's reasoning behind why one person would target another or why one group would target another. There's, you know, petty slights and there's damage to reputation. There's, you know, prior attempts at harming someone from your group. But basically what we're seeing is just typical tit-for-tat gang um, retaliations or gang shootings. Yes, there is an element of opportunity to it. You know, if you're carrying a gun and you're very, um, you're very um, sort of tight with your group and you believe that your group is the group, the best group, and you've got the means to harm somebody from the out group, which is anybody who is not in your group or aligned with your group, then you may very well take that opportunity especially if there's room in your gang to move up and become a more important person. Because just like any business, the higher you rise, the better benefits you get. You're going to earn more money. You're going to get more girls. You're going to get the better girls. You're going to have more opportunities. You're going to eat in nicer restaurants. (laughs) So there are a number of um, motivations behind doing it. You can make a name for yourself on the street. So, um, opportunity, um, deliberate, uh, targeting certain people to take them out, to weaken other gangs, build your reputation. So I wouldn't call it random. I would call it opportunistic. So they're, they're, they're just really going, how do I, and it could be the same couple of people doing these, these acts if they're trying to rise up the ladder of, of gang, of gang warfare. Sure. 
So this yeah, is, sure. This is reminiscent, though, to me of the early, late 90s, early 2000s. It sort of has this yeah. history in Vancouver, especially in the region. Uh, does, does there, is there any th- comparisons that you can take from what we're seeing now uh, and some of what we need to do to solve the problem from what happened in the late 90s and early 2000s? Well, there are, that's, that's two quite sort of large questions there. Uh, what to do? I'd like to address that first because I'm not exactly sure how much time you're going to give me, but we, because <laughs> you know. we keep talking about this, right? It's, oh my God, this is terrible. We're all clutching our pearls and going, this is the worst we've ever seen it. And we're done with this. This is awful. And people are tired of not being safe and on and on. And then it kind of fades out of the public consciousness and we all just go back to our lives. And so there's a number of things that we, we all have to do. And it's every one of us. And I keep stressing this. I can't stress this enough. So we have to stop teaching group politics. We have to stop teaching we're the good group, they're the bad group, we're the special people, they're not. And we do this in everything from sports to um, artistic activities to, oh, well, our family's the best in our neighborhood and the rest of them are junk schools, you know, this school is better than that school. So we we inculcated into our children from almost the time that they can speak if not earlier. And then we wonder why they join into groups and go after each other. So that's that's the first thing we have to start teaching. We are all a community. We're all in this together. So it's a genera- to- generational problem though. We have this this is not something you can solve overnight though. No, 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 no. This didn't grow overnight. As you are pointing out, this has a long history. And let's just look at some of the ages of the people who have been shot. We've got youngsters. We've got 13, 14, 15-year-olds, and we've got 50, 60-year-olds. So we're talking generations of this that we need to start breaking down. And it's going to take concerted effort over generations to break this down. So that's why I say every aspect of society, from our, our laws and our funders in the government, down to the individual neighbor and family member, has to start looking at this as their responsibility. So this not is not somebody else's. So this is not right. something that just that's okay. That's this is not just about hey, let's give more money to the police and that will solve all the problems. There are Has other things. That, okay. I'll ask you that question. Has that solved the problem? <laughs> well, I mean, let's look back again at that. What, how, what made that last, uh, you know, in the late 90s, it ended. It sort of disappeared. What happened that made it kind of go away for a number of years and now it seems to be resurging? What, what, what was it? Was it policing? Was it just it run its course? What, what exactly happened? Well, there, it's a combination of things. There gets to be where even the gang members are like enough is enough. We're decimated sufficiently that we need to regroup. So, you know, licking their wounds, retreating a little bit. There may also be stability in the market. I mean, there are probably hundreds of researchers looking at this and asking that question. Why did it calm down? And it's never one thing. It may be that the police were um, redirecting the way they were going about investigating and arresting. It may, or their actions on the street. It may be that the gangs were decimated and weak enough. It may be that within the gangs, things settled out enough. There was enough market for the drugs that were coming in that they didn't have to fight so hard over territories and money. Um, 
we didn't see, I'm trying to remember exactly when fentanyl hit the street. We were still, I think, tailing out of the cocaine and heroin. And it was more, people were doing more um, smoking marijuana and starting to look at, at legalizing um, pot and that sort of thing. So there, there wasn't the disruptive influence of really powerful drugs in the market that were addictive in a new and different way. We also have to look at what our uh, medical community is doing because when we've limited the supply of pain control to a degree that we start to see people who are in pain turning to the street to buy drugs, we're pushing a whole new market of people onto the street. And that's a very viable market. Yeah. They'll buy steady amounts. Multi, right? yeah, multi-platform, like multi-governmental, multi-schools yeah, School? you know, and healthcare. We've got to get going, Hillary, but you know, the, the challenge that you've presented to us today is not a simple solution. And I appreciate you, you uh, joining me today, Hillary. And uh, I think it's been really helpful for us and we'll have you back. Good. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. George Affligan for Mike Smith today. Thanks for joining me here on 980 CKNW. Uh, so despite the pandemic, 2020 saw the highest number of new housing approvals ever in Vancouver. Condominiums, purpose-built market rental housing, and social housing all exceeded their annual targets. Well, what does this all new uh, mean for housing, for homeowners, and uh, is it a positive shift today? And there was just a press conference that was just held uh, where we had a federal government, Ahmed Hussein, Hussein, Minister of Families, Children and Social Development on new rental housing uh, investment, and here's a clip from that press conference. Our government has invested $6.4 million for the construction of a new project for Indigenous families by Luma Native Housing Society, a four-story 23-unit project on Boundary in East Vancouver. And the really good news is that all of the residents will benefit from the fact that these apartments will be central, affordable, accessible, and energy efficient. This investment is being delivered through the Rental Construction Financing Initiative, a $25.75 billion program, which provides low-cost loans to encourage the construction of 71,000 new rental housing units across the country. Big numbers for sure. And uh, in Vancouver, we saw record numbers, as I mentioned. Joining me now is Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect planner. He's been around for quite a long time. Michael, how are you doing today? Five decades. I've been around <laughs> for five decades. Well, we won't talk about that because you know it's uh, time goes by too quick. This latest da- this latest data this latest data is quite interesting and it's quite surprising given that a year ago the mayor was claiming that we were going to be bankrupt in Vancouver and everything was all going to hell. And so what what is the what's happening here? Why are there so many approvals, thousands and thousands? And now this new announcement from the federal government means more. It's a combination of things, George. The first one is that the city of Vancouver, a number of years ago, decided to put rental housing on sale. We all like to buy things when they're on sale. And the city basically said, if instead of building condos, you build rental, you, you will reduce the fees you have to pay, we'll speed up the approval process, and we'll let you build bigger buildings. And as the condo market softened, a lot of developers switch their projects to rental, and that's one of the reasons why we've seen such a significant increase in the number of new, both market rental and more affordable rental projects uh, coming to the, getting approved 
and over the next couple of years coming to the market. We're seeing this kind of numbers in other cities across the region too, though I think the market's pretty hot and that old argument about supply and demand, when we see the pricing prices of homes still skyrocketing, uh, it sort of speak, goes against that supply and demand argument, does it not? Well, again, uh, these projects take so long that oftentimes a developer will be looking off into the future. But you're quite correct if you look at Burnaby, and indeed, anybody who's driven through Burnaby lately would say, my God, what's, what's happening here? Uh, but Coquitlam, New Westminster, even on the North Shore, uh, the district of North Vancouver is encouraging more rental housing. So we are seeing these units coming to market. And I think over the longer term, we'll see a softening in the market. In fact, although all we hear about daily is the increase in housing prices, rents in Metro Vancouver have actually softened over the last year since many people who were renting are either moving back home or simply cannot afford some of the higher rent properties. And we're also not seeing those Airbnbs that would have been across the region before not being used because there's no tourists here as well. So I imagine that has an impact. That's right. But you raised an interesting point in your intro, George, and said, is this going to help the city financially? Yeah. The irony is that if you will go back a few years, 2018, the city of Vancouver receives over $700 million, $700 million from developers wanting to build condominiums. But that money dramatically declined the following year to in the order of $86 million, a significant drop, because the condo development stopped. And so now the question is, is this supply increase correlating directly into increased revenue for the city. And it won't. It won't because while the number of condos is continuing, um, it, uh, they're the only ones that are really generating the huge revenues. The city still collects revenues from permit fees and so mm-hmm. forth. And I have to say, while I'd be very critical of the city, especially the amount of time it takes to get approvals, and it still takes too long to get approvals, I think the city is to be congratulated on uh, on increasing the, the number of approvals and the overall supply, both condos, but also uh, these other programs. Also, the federal government, as your news clip showed, is playing a major role after decades of being out of housing funding. All right, Michael. I appreciate you taking the time this morning to join me. It's been really helpful. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you, Michael. Hope you continue to enjoy this new gig. <laughs> Thanks. We'll see. Thanks, Michael. Michael Geller is president of the Geller Group. George Affleckin for Mike Smith today. Hope everybody is doing well on this Monday morning. Lots on the show today, but first we'll be talking a bit about uh, the uh, data transparency. Friday, BC Health officials defended their approach to data transparency and pledged to release more detailed COVID-19 data in the coming weeks. The comments came at a press conference after the Vancouver Sun reporter detailed uh, the uh, the detailed leaked reports from BC Centre of Disease Control. These contain details not previously shown to the public. Here's Dr. Bonnie Henry at Friday's press conference. We do release almost all of that information that was in uh, some of the reports uh, that were posted. Um, it comes out in various different forms. But those were working copies where we had, for example, several different ways of looking at uh, variants of concern. And we have a discussion about which is the one that's most meaningful. And that's the one that's released. And it will be released again today. 
So that was Dr. Bonnie Henry on Friday at a press conference. We'll be taking your calls at the end of the hour at 604-280-9898 to get your thoughts on whether or not uh, there needs to be more transparency. But joining me now uh, is Sonia Firstenau. She is the BC Green Leader. Uh, and she's joining hi, 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 Hello, Ms. Ms. Firstenau. How are you today? I'm well. How are you doing? Good. So the press conference on Friday seemed to go a bit uh, sideways. We have reporters now saying that they wanted... That they, if they wanted more info, they, they, if they had wanted more info, they should have asked for it. But they say they have been asking. And I know that mm-hmm. you have been asking for many months for more information. Uh, what do you know about what's been available and what will be available, and what, what you know? What? Why is there a disconnect here? You know, I, I'm not sure about why there is a disconnect, but clearly there is. I mean, to to continually suggest that BC is as or more transparent than the other provinces, just simply isn't accurate. Um, you know, we don't provide regular vaccine updates by age. This is, uh, you know, the, the neighborhood level uh, data and information, uh, the lack of data on weekends, for example. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty extraordinary in and of itself that, you know, even at the highest numbers um, in the third wave, we, we were having to wait till Monday to get uh, data about just basic case numbers on weekends. I think what's what's been consistent in the response to this is that many of the the groups and organizations, the experts, the the scientists, epidemiologists, but also community organizers have made very strong cases for why this data is important for both informing and educating the public, but also informing the response. Um, being able to partner with organizations in different neighborhoods, uh, but also just recognizing. And the analogy I've been using is if you go to your doctor and your doctor says, well, I got your test results back. I'm not really going to show you all the results. There is a condition. I'm not going to give you all the information, but here's your regimen that you need to follow. Just trust me. I think most of us would say, actually, I think I deserve to, to fully understand the picture if you're giving me health advice. What and a, and this, is, this is the ultimate thing, is transparency builds trust. What about the argument that some would make that providing less transparency or less information puts a fear into us all in, in order for us to contain ourselves? And, and if you provide, you know, regional or local transparency, uh, then you'll say, oh, okay, it's safe in my neighborhood, I'm going to go do whatever I want, and it therefore could cause further spread. I think particularly in a in a society like ours the the notion that people can't handle information and knowledge is is really not a good place to start. I think we should be looking at how do we inform, educate and empower citizens the very most we're in a democracy that's that should be how we work um, and that people are sophisticated and capable of recognizing that uh, there may be some regional differences, and we've known that all along at a at a larger scale regional basis. Um, you know, Vancouver Island typically has had a, a lower rate of infection. However, you know, people on Vancouver Island have also been consistently uh, willing to follow the health orders and mask up and uh, get vaccinated. So I think it's a it, it's not a good place to start vis-a-vis government relationship with the public. Uh, in the, the, you know, assuming that the public can't handle uh, accurate, transparent information. I think we should be really respecting the public and recognizing that in a health emergency, 
detailed knowledge and information isn't a nice to have. It's actually essential. It's what would kind of feeds into the conspiracy theory people who might think that there's something being hidden when there actually, when in fact, there is kind of stuff that's being hidden as we've learned well, or not being presented, I suppose, is a better way to put this, it. This is the problem, is that we, we are, by nature, going to fill in gaps, right? right? We're going to want to understand. We want a complete picture. And what we don't want is people filling in gaps with, you know, the wrong information or the wrong assumptions. And, and that's another really, you, you know, you really pointed to it. We, we, the more gaps there are in the information being provided by government, the more people are going to be anxious, worried, suspicious, nervous. Mm-hmm. Schools have been one of the main points that you've been trying to make, and I have a, a son in, in elementary school, and we get the information. We've had a few uh, potential exposures in cl- other classrooms, not his classroom, uh, you know, and, and we get the information as parents through the internal newsletters, but it's not made public at all. Why do you think schools uh, should be prioritized for information uh, publicly? Well, I mean, I, I again, this, this is public health, right? Uh, so in terms of having a knowledge and understanding of, of what's happening so that you can best inform the decisions to keep yourselves and your family safe, um, transparency and information is important. And that's not, you know, of course, you protect identity, you protect private information, but this has been a longstanding concern uh, and criticism from a lot of teachers and parents that they're not finding out from the health agencies about outbreaks or infections in their school communities. They're finding out from other parents or, you know, as you say, from a newsletter. I think that we have uh, a long way to go to get to a level of transparency about schools, about transmission, uh, and about open and honest communication about that that is essential to rebuilding trust. Is there anything that you can do? I mean, this is, we're in the, hopefully towards the end of this pandemic and we've seen different communication styles related to this pandemic, but as a policymaker, is there anything that you think you can go back to the legislature and do that will ensure more transparency, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's not a pandemic? Like the minister mm-hmm. responsible mm-hmm. didn't show up at this press conference, clearly probably concerned about being there because of the, he knew he was going to get some heat. What can be done from a policy point of view that you think you can bring in uh, to really change the way things are communicated? As a as a two-person uh, third-party opposition caucus, <laughs> we're going to keep doing what we've been doing, which is uh, consistently make the call uh, to government, make the case for more transparency, and, and the case for why that's important for trust and democracy. I think the next steps that we need to see from this government, uh, not only continuing to release the level of data that came out last week in the, the reports that were leaked, but as we just talked about, be more transparent about schools and school communities. And if you are not already doing so, collecting data on long COVID, uh, we know that in countries that they are collecting this data, it's between 10 and 30% of people who experience long-term symptoms after the infectious period is over. And those can have uh, very serious impacts on a person's life, you know, brain fog, fatigue, uh, joint pain, muscle pain. There are uh, a lot of symptoms associated with, um, quote-unquote, long COVID. And I think we need to be collecting that data and using that to put policies in place, get out in front of 
uh, the impacts of long COVID on people's ability to return to work full time? And how are those people going to be protected in terms of, uh, you know, not being just sort of left on their own to cope with these uh, symptoms as they go on for so long? But with this movement uh, this, and this exposure that the transparency is not happening, is there a policy, certainly within, because of Dr. Bonnie Henry and, and there's so much power when we're in, this, in the current situation because of the Act, is there things that can be changed within the Act, uh, within the, the regulations that we have that provide, that can force more transparency in, a, in a, certainly in a pandemic when, we're, when, we, when we hand over so much control to uh, the public body? Yeah, I think that's a really good question and, and something that can certainly be looked into. But I also think that uh, the government itself, uh, the premier and the minister, have a lot of uh, leeway and capacity to to be as transparent as they choose to be. Um, this really ultimately does fall to government. And we can see in other provinces where there are much higher rates of transparency, um, you know, with health officers working under the same basic frameworks. Um, I think that this really is a question for this government, and it's not only uh, related to COVID-19, where we see a lack of transparency. We know, for example, Site C, uh, the largest infrastructure project now, you know, $16 billion in climbing there has been an astonishing level of secrecy and lack of transparency connected to that. And even their new NBC, uh, you know, investment corporation, uh, they're already starting out on a foot of uh, of being un- not transparent about that. I think it, it, we have to recognize in a democracy that transparency from government is absolutely essential. Goes hand in hand. Thanks for uh, joining me today, Ms. Firstino. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. George Affleck in for Mike Steele today. Hope you're doing well on this Monday morning. We've got a lot of stuff going on this uh, this hour and in the next hour. For this half hour, we're going to be uh, having a couple of interviews. And at the end, we'll be taking your calls related to uh, COVID or for vaccine passports. A new poll from Research Co. came out over the weekend. It shows that people in BC are, uh, are supportive of vaccine passports. Uh, before the news, we'll take your calls. The number is 604-280-9898 to get your input on the vaccine passport idea. To tell me more about this report from Research Co., I'm joined by Mario Conseco, president of research go hey mario george it's great to chat with you thanks for having me no problem so tell me just give me the outlines of the data here what's what are are the high level numbers well we wanted to ask about several things Uh, travel within your province travel to other provinces travel abroad but also take the concept of the vaccine passport into other venues uh, gyms sporting events concerts and what we see here is that there's a majority of uh, canadians who believe that this would be a good idea as we try to get into herd immunity when it comes to COVID-19. But, you know, I, you know, I would assume, hey, it should be 100%. It was about 59% for BC, which is not, a, you know, I guess that's a strong number for you? Well, it's uh, definitely larger than what I expected. Hmm. You know, we've seen a lot of discussions on social media about how this is terrible. It's the second, <laughs> it, it's a situation that a lot of people maybe don't want to see and are speaking very uh, openly on social media. Uh, but, you know, to see this type of, of support is, is definitely, uh, you know, significant. You know, it's, it's, it would be ideal, of course, if you're on the side of the vaccine passports, if, if this would be closer to 70 or 80 uh, percent. But you still have a majority of Canadians who believe that this is a good idea. So 
I guess it comes both ways. You know, <laughs> it, it would be great for those who want to see this happen to have it be larger, but we don't have as vocal, uh, even though we have this vocal opposition to the concept, it's a minority. Do you think that, I mean, that skepticism is still out there. Do you think that will wane and are you have you seen it sort of slow down or go away as we get vaccinated, that people become less mm, conspiratorial potentially? Well, one of the things that is definitely happening is uh, when we asked this for the first time a couple of months ago, uh, the level of support was not as high with the over 55 crowd. Now, Hmm. many of them have already been vaccinated at least once. So they're more likely to say, "Okay, I want to get my summer back. If I (laughs) want to go to a concert and be surrounded by people who have been vaccinated, why not do it? So as we continue to go through this, maybe in a couple of months when Generation X has been vaccinated, we'll see those numbers climbing a little bit higher than we have right now. But the one thing that has been consistent since the start of the pandemic is the level of skepticism about the vaccines. Uh, It's usually somewhere between 13 and 17 percent in all of the surveys that we've conducted nationwide and in British Columbia. So it's a number that hasn't changed uh, since we started tracking this back in April of last year. So that number hasn't changed, but support for a program like Vaccine Passport has gone up. So that's interesting because you think that those numbers would be, there would be correlated. There would be the people who are skeptical of the vaccine are probably skeptical about everything. Well, and this is definitely part of the argument here. You know, we, we do know that there's a group that is skeptical that COVID-19 is real. They don't want to wear masks and they certainly don't want to get vaccinated and they don't want to have vaccine passports. It's a group that is certainly in the minority. I think there are several situations where you could look at this as a concept uh, that is actually temporary. You know, nobody's suggesting that this is going to be absolutely necessary for everything that is going to be happening. But as you get closer to herd immunity, is this a way to get people back into certain activities that they had before COVID-19? Most Canadians are saying, yes, it should be. All right, Mary, I appreciate uh, the call and the, and the data. It's really helpful. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you again, I'm sure. My pleasure, George. Anytime. Mario Canseco is president of Research Co. So we heard there's support for vaccine passports in BC, but there are some potential problems um, potentially with what these passports might look like. We hear a lot of worry about that. I'm now joined by Dr. Judy Illis, professor of neurology and uh, and Canada research chair of neuroethics at UBC. Hello, Dr. Illis. Hello, George. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for joining me. This poll shows two-thirds support for vaccine uh, for vaccine passport idea, but there seems to be some skepticism about it, embracing it. Does this surprise you? The numbers of these, the numbers you heard from Mario, though. Oh, I'm not really surprised. You know, I think there's always a percent of people who are skeptical, oppositional, um, and in in the case with vaccines, there are people who we call anti-vaxxers, who are just anti-vaccination uh, in general. And what I'm really enthusiastic about is the almost 60% of people supporting the idea of um, vaccination. So what you're calling vaccination passports, I want to call vaccination certificates. Because what we're looking at is certification like other forms of vaccines, mm-hmm. like malaria or when we travel for um, to foreign countries that have diseases that we don't have here, for example, in Canada or B.C., and we get vaccination certificates. So um, passports suggest a rite of passage, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about actually certification of vaccination. And, you know, what's really important is that we don't um, look at whether we call them certifications or passports um, as requirements 
because everything is still a moving target right now. Mm-hmm. And not everybody who wants one is able to get one. There are young people chomping at the bit to get a vaccination who haven't yet had access. Most of us have not had full doses yet. So we have to be very careful um, how we think about requiring them or mandating them uh, in our flow of society. They're, they're in, the re- in the report and the study, they talked about events and you know, shows in, in the country, which is one thing, but travel is another. And I know the UK is looking at currently uh, red light, yellow, you know, yellow light or green light right now. Or I think they're announcing it today, what process that will look like for travel into the UK. I guess the question a lot of people ask is, you know, when they want to travel, how much information and where can that information be stored? On my Nexus, on my, on my driver's license, in my passport, or, or is it just a simple card like we used to get when we traveled and had, uh, you know, the certificate, as you call it? Or do we need something more robust in order for other countries to trust us? Well, I think everyone has to trust everybody. And what we have to come together in a very sort of communitarian spirit is promoting um, a harmonized and good public health campaign, which is to get vaccinated, um, still physically distanced, still well, well wear masks um, until this is over. But what's really important when you, you know, ask about trust, we have to ensure people's privacy um, and we have to particularly attend to people who are vulnerable in our populations, um, those who might be living, living in rural and remote regions, those who are vulnerable to um, different kinds of health disorders, including brain disorders where vaccination may or may not be indicated. So there are a lot of factors, again, on this still moving target uh, in, our, in our life right now. In the for traveling, do you see um, thing? What's it, with Britain already announcing they're opening things up? What what's the chances of us having even to need to travel and have the ability to use a passport? How many months are we talking about? Because we saw challenges with the government related to just the vaccination program to create a, a, a certificate system. Is there an example for in another country that where they've really found an efficient way that we could replicate or adopt? Yeah, you know, I, I'm a, an, an ethicist who focus on neurological and mental health issues, so I don't know the answer to that question. Um, you know, my job is to think about um, how to situate decisions in the very best way for the most number of people and to really to get our citizens all on board so we can trust each other, as you asked, George, and assure privacy and ensure um, good behaviors and good health behaviors that really maximize benefit for everyone. So when you see 60% support uh, in this province, does that make you optimistic uh, that we're heading the right direction, that the support for vaccination, the support for a passport program or a certificate program, as you call it, that's a good thing that we're heading in the right direction? You know, I think um, as our programs continue to unfold, as uh, vaccinations become more and more available to everyone who wants them, those numbers will really go up. And I think those numbers are probably related to the fact that there's still a large population out there who would like to get vaccinated and haven't been able to yet or haven't even been able to complete their course of vaccination. So I think as we fulfill those needs, those numbers will go up. George Affleck here filling in for Mike Smith today on Monday morning. We're taking your calls about whether or not you would support a vaccine passport system to travel or to go to things like concerts and movies. Is this the way forward or is it an infringement on our freedoms? 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898. First up, we have Steve in Vancouver. Steve, thoughts? Hello, George. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Um, I am I am pro-vaccine and I'll tell you why. Um 
I used to work in the television commercial production industry. Uh, 70 to 80% of the television commercials produced in Canada are from foreign countries. Uh, this 14-day quarantine has brought this industry, which employs thousands of crew, actors, uh, effects, hotels, food and beverage, has, 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 has it, it, it's handcuffed us. It's handcuffed us because of this 14-day quarantine. We, don't, we often get lumped into the film business uh, where you have, yes, everybody sees a boom of television shows and movies, but they have different budgets and they have different timelines where somebody can, can afford one or two p- people, a director or a producer, can come up and afford to 14-day quarantine. Often in television commercials, we don't get that much notice prior to uh, being awarded a job. Many Americans have had double vaccines, fully vaccinated. Yeah. To kibosh them for a 14-day quarantine uh, is, is ridiculous. If they've been vaccinated, they have a negative test prior to departure of their city, uh, a negative vaccine when they arrive. We need to open this up. We yeah. need to get on board with the rest of the world with these vaccine passports. And, and, and of course, when, when somebody is in a jurisdiction that has certain health rules and regulations, you follow them. But there is there is hundreds of millions of dollars being lost. Um, families not being fed. Uh, permit city permits for filming. Yeah, tons uh, of uh, it's a big industry so that's much. getting hit hard. Steve, thanks thanks for the call. Yeah, we're and we're seeing what's happening in the UK today. I think they're announcing a process for travel into the UK, so we'll be watching that closely. Susan from North Van, thoughts on uh, vaccine passports? Definitely, uh, we need them. I am seventy one years old. I remember polio, I remember iron lungs mm-hmm. and children dying. I have had uh, vaccinations for polio, smallpox, hepatitis, shingles, the flu shot every year. <laughs> You've had it I'm all. Still I'm still alive. <laughs> and I just had my COVID-19 vaccine about a month ago. I'm still here. So it's something so, that we've okay. been doing. So why, why would we do it any differently moving forward with, uh, with this latest virus, right? Yes. I mean, it is, it is selfish not to get vaccinated. And I think people who don't want to be vaccinated should live in their own communities away from the rest <laughs> okay, of us. Susan. Thanks for your call, Susan. I guess Sean from Chilliwack. Hi there. Um, I just wanted to say that I've always, always grown up that it was our responsibility to take care of ourselves and the government was there to help us, not necessarily take over. That last comment there of those people who don't want to get vaccinated or whatnot to leave, live on their own, that's no different than saying you're unclean, you need to be marked, you need to carry around the badge. We've seen this throughout history. So a balance is, is needed. You can't yeah. just go one way or the other. I agree with a passport for international travel, but mm-hmm. not for commerce. Okay, uh, so it's no, not events or things like that. So No, but, right. um, but making people more aware of it and giving more education, protecting the people who are vulnerable a little bit more, rather than shutting down the entire country. All right, Sean. We, that, that's good. Now, I think it's a really good point, Sean. I think that knowing, you know, looking at events and looking at an internal system in, within Canada differently than international travel, but also we have to think about people's rights, which I, I get totally. Benny from Abbotsford. Yeah, George, I'm in favor of vaccine passports. There has to be a consequence if you don't want to get the vaccine to eliminate this uh, pandemic altogether. There's consequences if you don't 
fill out your income tax. There's consequences if you uh, if you drink and drive. There's consequences if you text and drive. So like anything else, if you don't want to go by the rules and you don't want to go by the majority, that's fine with me. But don't ask for any privileges. All right. That's a really good point, Benny. Thanks very much. We've got Pat from Abbotsford. Pat, your thoughts, vaccine passports uh, or not? Uh, yes, uh, some version of it. I've been carrying a yellow vaccination record since huh, I was yeah. 20, and I'm 75 this year. Um, and also, I've noticed that the cruise lines now, some of them are saying they will absolutely not carry you. It doesn't matter if you have a medical mm-hmm. condition or not, if you do not have proof of vaccination. What about for yeah. events? Like if you're going to go to a hockey game up at the, in Abbotsford or a, to a concert at the yeah. arena there or to the, or to the boat show or something, what, what, what about those? I would like to feel like I'm not taking a risk going there, so some version of something would be nice. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't go, at least not for a while anyway. And do you, and you said, I do have a, Yeah, go ahead. I do, I do have a secondary question because I've been trying to track something and I don't know how to find it. Um, I've had my first Pfizer vaccine, and I'd like to know where you find data on the age group of how many people are actually still waiting in whatever, in, in any given health region for their second vaccine. And I can't seem to locate that information. I'm wondering if it's published anywhere. It's a good question. And, uh, you know, Keith Baldry mentioned that there is tons of data on the website. It's mining it and finding out the answers to those questions. But I will I will bring that up with Keith tomorrow and ask him that specific question when, he, when we do our Baldry's Beat tomorrow show. So listen to tomorrow's show and we'll, we'll, have a, we'll, we'll ask him that question. Thanks for calling in, uh, Pat. Real quick, Wendy, thoughts? Yeah, I've had three heart attacks, four strokes, to have kidney failure, three comas, and I had my first Pfizer shot, and I won't feel safe to go out till I get my second one. So making sure everybody is safe and, and the passport idea so that you stay, so you don't get hurt. Uh, and, and Well, if I get COVID, it will kill me. Right. All right. I have COPD as well. You've, so you've been I through think it all, Wendy. Yeah, wow. they should think everyone out there who's not going to get the vaccination. Think about your children. Think about your mother. Think about innocent people. That's all I have to say. Thank all right, you Wendy. Very thanks much. for calling, Wendy from Surrey. Uh, that's uh, that's it. Give us a call for the half hour. Give us a call on your buzz line three three one two eight nine nine if you want to weigh in six zero four three three one two eight nine nine. George Affleck sitting in for Mike Smith today. Welcome back to the show. The sun is. Shining, somewhat shining. It's getting shinier, uh, and summer is just around the corner. I noticed this morning when I had to wake up quite early for the show, it was it was sunny out, which was great. Much easier to wake up in the early mornings, um, and that means it's a great time to get outdoors, of course, with summer. But would you be able to identify an invasive species of plants or critters across Metro Vancouver? Our show contributor John Jang can help with that. Hey, good morning, George. One of my neighbors was working on the garden yesterday, and she mentioned the importance of watching out for certain plants that can and will grow out of control if you're not careful and bring down an entire garden with it. That sent me down this rabbit hole and learning more about what we call invasive species. But I've got to confess, I am not an expert. Tasha Murray, however, is the executive director of the Invasive Species Council of Metro Vancouver, and she joins us now. Tasha, can you help explain what we mean when we're talking about invasive species? Sure, yeah. I think a lot of people are not aware that not every living thing that we see outdoors belongs there. There are species in Metro Vancouver um, that we're actively managing because they're, they're having lots of impact. So invasive species 
are essentially living things that have come from somewhere else on Earth, and they've been introduced to the Metro Vancouver region, and they're causing some kind of significant impact. Maybe um, they're bad for the environment, maybe they are toxic for humans, or maybe they're causing some sort of economic impact. That's interesting because, you know, we happen to live in an area of the world that is still classified as a temperate rainforest. So we do have a pretty uh, delicate ecosystem, I would imagine. And if something foreign sort of enters that whole system, it throws the entire thing out of balance. So when we talk about invasive species, Tasha, are we talking specifically about plants or critters or maybe both? We're talking about everything. Yeah, any living species has the potential to be an invasive species. So we often focus a lot on the invasive plants, but we also have lots of examples of invasive insects or birds or even mammals and amphibians right here in Metro Vancouver that that didn't evolve here. They don't belong here. Now, what's the most common way that someone could identify an invasive species? Because I'll admit, I don't have much of a green thumb. So when people go outside and they take photos of plants or or even flowers sometimes, I look at them and I say, oh, that looks beautiful or that looks pretty. And that's pretty much the extent of my knowledge of such things. So if I did come across something that might have been an invasive species, how would I know that I'm looking at this the right way? Mm-hmm. Really, really good question. So there isn't one distinguishing feature or characteristic of an invasive species. The trick is you have to be able to identify a few things in your neighborhood. Sometimes if you see something really unusual or new or in a place where you hadn't seen it before, sometimes that could be an indication that it's an invasive species that has recently come here. But for the most part, we have to do a little bit of homework and um, find out the identity of the species in question. So I really encourage residents, as you're outdoors recreating, get to know some of your local plants, get to know whether they're invasive or whether they're native, um, and just you know become really aware of your surroundings. It really is important to know what you're looking at to help determine whether it's invasive or not. You know, I, I think we've seen over the past year and a bit, certainly more and more people choosing to uh, shop online as it's a little bit more convenient. You don't have to go into stores. And I don't know if this is a thing, but if you're thinking about maybe purchasing plants and flowers online, certainly then what you're saying is do the research, make sure that this species is something that would be comfortable in a setting here in Metro Vancouver. That's right. Yeah. Um, Some of the species that you can buy online are definitely not appropriate to be introducing to our BC ecosystem. So you do need to do your homework. And um, I think it's great to support local retailers. And when you go into these stores or if you can talk to somebody, um, you know, who's local, then you can ask questions. Is this invasive? Is this going to take over my garden? Is it appropriate to be planting here? Whereas when you're buying online, sometimes you you don't have the resources to know whether you're planting the right thing for the right place. Also, one thing that I know is very common and very popular across Metro Vancouver is the use of community gardens. And boy, you wouldn't want to be that person that unfortunately plants something invasive and actually ruins an entire crop for somebody else because you happen to share uh, the same plot. Mm-hmm. That's very true. Not a great way to make friends in your community garden, right? So again, <laughs> just being really conscious of anything that you're introducing um, into a space that you're working in, whether it's your own property, whether it's a community garden or a space that you might be volunteering at, you just need to be really careful that what you're planting is appropriate for the site. 
Now, what would you say is the right way to sort of dispose of these invasive species once they've been identified, once you've sort of isolated them? Is it as simple as just composting them or throwing them out? Or is there a very specific method that people should be following? It's a good question. And this um, answer is it's very regional specific. So it matters where you live. But generally, we don't advise composting invasive plants in your backyard composter or if you just have sort of a a compost heap in your backyard, you don't want to put your invasives in there because they could potentially grow out of those areas. But generally in Metro Vancouver, most of our municipalities have uh, yard waste pickup and you can safely dispose of your invasive plants in the green waste stream. However, We do have some toxic invasive plants, so a couple examples would be giant hogweed or Daphne laurel. And so for those particular plants, um, there's a a separate process. We don't want any of the facility staff to come in contact with those toxic plants. And so there's, um, there's other recommendations for those toxic ones. Well said, Tasha. And for those that are just wondering how they can find more information and uh, give themselves the knowledge ready as they step out and get ready for the outdoors and for gardening and all these things, how can they find more relatable information when it comes to invasive species? They can visit my website, iscmv.ca, or some of the best resources that we have in the region. We have a number of two-page fact sheets or um, also detailed information on how to actually manage and get rid of these high-priority invasive species. So if you go to metrovancouver.org and search for invasive species, you'll find a page with lots more information. Perfect. She is Tasha Murray, the Executive Director of the Invasive Species Council of Metro Vancouver, and appreciate you giving us some time here today. Thanks very much. You know, John, I have a solution for dealing with this for me. I just don't guard you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's an easy solution. No, but actually there was, we have a little balcony garden and, and we had this huge uh, blackberry bush that's suddenly growing and we're like, where did that come from? We didn't plant right. it. It's like a seed or it came out of their poop. I don't know where it came from, but from a bird, I don't know. It was bad, though. They take over everything. I I have the same excuse, though, George, because I no longer live in an apartment building that has a balcony or a patio, so I just don't have a lot of space to grow things anymore. For example, here, I'll I'll tap this. I don't know if you can really hear this, (laughs) but this is my... This is my fake plant. It's the only real green <laughs> that Ikea, I have. Or where did you get it? I got it at the dollar store because <laughs> nice. I like supporting local, and I guess. But uh, <laughs> I'd like to pretend that I'm growing something. And uh, rest assured, this fake plant will not be an invasive. <laughs> it's uh, not growing really anything. You might want to get a cactus at least, you know, because you, you can't do much. You can overwater a cactus, but, you know. Get, I have get... overwatered a cactus before, and it was traumatic. Okay, then don't get a plant. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. Thanks very much. It was really, you really it. interesting.